Good morning fellow green folk of the Isle of Faces. Welcome back, this is Scraps and Scrolls, this is Valoridus, and today we enter a brand new book, the third in the series, A Storm of Swords. The clouds are gathering above the Isle, they're looking pretty sharp, but hopefully you'll keep with us for 17 total episodes, yes 17. For the longest book yet, I'm sure you'll agree, the most eventful book yet. Everything happens very, very quickly, especially towards the end. And uh, we're really going to enjoy going forward through this momentous tome of excitement. I'll try and think of some bigger, better words as we go. Hello, I am Sir Buckley. I'm your guide through this reread project. I am helping Aziz and the Shea of History of Westeros, as I'm sure you know, as they do their reread projects, the brilliantly named Valoridis, and they do their live streams every Sunday. I'm picking up the extra notes. I provide Aziz and the Shea some notes to go through. Sometimes they can't get to them all, so the leftovers, they come here to the aisle, and I pass them on to you, our loyal listeners. And let me thank you for joining us again. Perhaps you've been with us for Game and Clash, Perhaps just one or the other, perhaps you are new. Either way, we have had some new subscribers this week. I'm very happy to have you aboard. Even some new patrons. And let me give a shout out to all our patrons. It is very much appreciated your support. And hopefully we can keep providing you with some extra content, some early content. Very much appreciated. Trust me. We've also had some people interacting, sending emails, giving some feedback on the podcast. Love that. Please keep it up. Please, please do let us know. Even just say hello. We're just happy to know you're out there, really. The Isle can be a lonely place. The God's Eye is far, it's hard to see all the way to the coast. So please do say hello and uh, chime in. We'd always love to hear from you, Patreon or not. Either way, we're, we're, we're quite happy. In terms of this week, I'm sure you all are addicted to my Twitter feed, as is British law. And you will have seen I've been retweeting all the people who were very kind and tweeted me over Christmas with pictures of my lovely book, just for those new listeners who might not know, my um, recently self-published book on the great casts of Westeros. People have been getting it or giving it as a Christmas present. They've been tweeting me pictures, and I had a nice little gap from Twitter over the holiday, so I caught up, retweeted everyone, replied to everyone. took a long time. There were loads. There were so many of you. And, uh, yeah, my mouth and my fingers got tired from saying thank you and over and over again. Very much appreciated. The sales, they are still going. It's way past what I expected when I hit the old publish button. And I do hope you will continue to let me know your thoughts on that as well. Whether you want to leave a review on Amazon, that would be lovely. Thank you very much. Whether you just want to send me an email or a tweet or whatever. Again, very much appreciated. I'm just glad you have it and I hope you're enjoying. But that is all aside for today. It's big time. We're starting a whole new book, like I said earlier. Storm of Swords, many people's favourite book. I definitely can't argue with that. Incredibly enjoyable. So much to go through, like Aziz would have said yesterday. I'm recording here on the Monday morning. And just uh, for those of you that want to know, patrons, you get this straight away on Monday, a day earlier than public release. That will come tomorrow. So lucky you get all these extra notes nice and quick. So just to update you, in case you missed Aziz, just going through the kind of details for this part of Valoridus. Like I said, 17 episodes. takes a long old time to get through this book. And Aziz and Shea, they shifted it slightly. Last time, it was six chapters ago. We're dropping that down to five this time because they're so big and so important and we really want to get the most out of them. Today, it's four chapters, and then we tell you what they are. Of course, we have our opening prologue. Hooray, Chet! Oh, no, wait. No, Boo Chet. That's right. Boo Chet. Then we have Jamie Wan. What's that I hear? New POV time. <laughs> Celebration. Then it's back to what we know and love. Catelyn Wan. Possibly not the uh, happiest POV arc in the, in the series, but we still love her anyway. And then finally, Aya Wan, because we like to start books with Aya. At least the last two, anyway. 
So that will be today. I'm going to go through these extra notes for you. And for those of you that are new, you might notice sometimes me and Aziz cross over sometimes, perhaps we're sharing a similar point. Most of that has been cut out by our little process here, but either way, uh, I'm sure you won't mind. And hopefully all new information, some little extra tidbits for you. And I hope you enjoy. Let's get to it then. Here we go. A Storm of Swords, the final book in the trip. Uh, no, no, that's not correct, is it? Oh, well. Never mind, we'll get there eventually. Let's begin with the prologue with Chet. So I'm sure you will remember, we begin above the wall, out on the Great Ranging, on the fifth of the first men still, they're still there, pretty boring for them I imagine, and we go into the mind of Chet, who's definitely not happy, he wants to mutiny, he wants to run away, and we've only met him briefly before, but... He's at least an established character. It's not completely new. So in Crescent's POV last time in Clash of Kings, we talked about how he was the outlier in terms of other prologue characters. So while Chet is a return to the norm in that regard, if you remember the prologue of Game of Thrones, that was also a Night's Watchman, Will, so we're kind of doubling up there. So while he's a return to the norm in that regard, he is also the first change in terms of A. He's the first prologue character we have already come across, like I just said. So that's something only shared with Varamir in Dance of Dragons. They're the only two that come up prior to their prologue chapters. B is the first of being a truly unlikable character. Again, something only shared with Varamir. As well as C being the only prologue chapter where we don't see their actual death on page. Lots of differences already here to start out with. Like back in Clash of Kings, where George wants to play with who we want to win at the Blackwater, we get our emotions and wants played with here again. Chet is clearly awful, I don't think we need to argue about that. And we're supposed to be glad that he meets his end at the end of this chapter, as we'll come to. Except that that also means the true danger is coming straight for the rest of the humanity, and especially for these 300 Brothers of the Night's Watch and Samuel Tardy. So we can't cheer too loudly for Chet's demise at the end here. And specifically, for a few seconds, we're glad that Chet's plan to assassinate Jewel Mormon has been scuppered. But then realise that it seems like it'll probably bring about the same result anyway. So, and for all my Dior bashing through Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings, I definitely do not want him being murdered here in this fashion. For all his mistakes, and there are many if you've been listening along to this podcast, I still like to believe there was a possibility he, he would have seen sense and headed back to the wall eventually anyway. But either way, I'm able to recognise that Jill's death would be a very bad thing, both for his 300 men and the wall in general at this time, as we will see later on in this book, of course. Now, I think this particular POV, as in Chet being used as a prologue character, and the events of this chapter, it had to happen now in this book, because it's been so long since Will, narratively speaking, and there are an unimaginable amount of political events about to happen in this book. So if we don't get a big old reminder about the true threat and the the others and everything about that, especially because John's second half of Clash of Kings really diverged into wildling territory instead of the other's territory, we would be running the risk of it never regaining true importance. So George really needs to put a stamp down here and just remind everyone exactly what's going on. Yet for all that, the true event of Chet's chapter, Chet's chapter, that's a good word, is brilliantly kept from us until the very end and there's a lot to explore first. I might have given a little roundup, but there's a lot of little details for us to go through. And we actually begin, classic George, our POV is a man who is plotting to kill the old bear. So, if, so of course, he also opens the chapter, failing to find an actual bear. Because George loves a bit of clues and a bit of symbolism. Rereaders who know what clues to look for find them of ease early on in this chapter, specifically when looking for White Walkers slash others. It's suddenly much colder, all the animals have scarpered, and there's a missing bear that we will soon see again. Thanks to the memories of Sam 1, we can look back again. New POV, by the way. Yeah, that's coming. We can look back and see the others are literally just behind the curtain already. 
But of course, we are not to know that at the moment for first-time readers. So let's start to look at the man himself, Chet. He tries to pass off the murders as necessary and not allowing them to simply run away. He, like They can't just run away, apparently they need to kill these people, even if it means adding killer to the deserter title. But really, underneath, it's his own vengeance is being played at. It's a happy convenience that he has to murder people that he really hates. And those vengeances are ones we spoke, we first spoke about in late Game of Thrones. He wants to kill Samuel Tarly because he wants to kill Samuel Tarly. Ravens be damned. I think we probably can glean that even if Sam wasn't in charge of the Ravens, Chet would probably want to kill him before he left anyway, because that's just the kind of guy that Chet is. Maybe he does want to kill Sam and Dior and perfectly innocent other people, but Chet is also mean to his dogs. So fuck Chet. We don't like Chet, whatever he's doing. That's the worst thing about him, in my book. We've had Gregor's men in Clash of Kings. They're pretty bad. We've had the Bloody Mummers too. They're bad. Now we have Chet's gang, who were definitely bad in their past and would be again if they ever had the opportunity. So much of the problems the wall currently suffers can be led at their feet, except for Small Paul, of course. We don't mind him. I don't want to uh, rehash discussions we had back in Game of Thrones. We are far from the wall at the moment. But this is the kind of thing that Dior's poor planning and kind of poor leadership has enabled over the years. This is the end result. I wonder, is Chet our second most intelligent POV? After Crescent, obviously, probably being our most intelligent. He's incredibly evil, no argument there. But this is a pretty well-planned escape. All details have been thought of, and I think George ensures that just to show that you can tie up all the loose ends, but still, no one expects the Spanish and the others. Even with all this planning, the others really scarper everything. They, they just ruin your plans, and uh, that's what Westeros, I'm assuming, will eventually find out. But Chet's atrocities, they keep you from wondering if he could have actually risen a bit higher in the watch if he'd used this intelligence and this skill for planning and thinking for something other than murdering or getting his own. But uh, unfortunately, we never find out. Let's have a look at some quotes about Chet, shall we? Let's begin here. When they caught him down near Seven Streams, old Lord Walder Frey hadn't even bothered to come himself to do the judging. So this is Chet reminding us, or telling us, his own past and why he's, well, not completely why he's like this, just why he's at the wall, basically. But this book is going to show us how depraved Walder Frey is. So even in the prologue, we have George reminding us that Walder is about as anti-Ned as you can get. Ned Stark would have come and done the judging. Walder Frey does not. We're going to find out many more ways that World of Ray is not like Ned Stark in this book, so it's important to get that name drop in early. Here's another quote. Chet, the leechman's son, a lord of a keep. His banner could be a dozen leeches on a field of pink. So this is when Chet's actually dreaming of uh, the plan coming off. He gets away. He can live above the wall, apparently, is like a, basically a new craster. And he's, he's thinking about leeches on fields of pink. So as if we didn't get the message already with the World of Ray connection, George is now associating the Boltons early on. That's a Walder Frey hint and a Roose Bolton hint, stashed in the prologue to let us know what's going down later on in the book, as well as associating Chet with the two worst evils that we're going to see in Storm of Swords. So we're really getting that association in early here. So Chet's past is enough for us to condemn him, as in his stabbing of the, the woman back at Hagsmire, but his plan for the future isn't much better. He essentially plans to become Carl Tanner from the TV show, minus the knives. He wants to be a landowner so he feels superior to his father, he wants to own all the Craster's wives to feel superior, as if he is visiting revenge to Besser. That's pretty much Chet's life ambition, is just to have vengeance on these years old people who are likely dead, or definitely dead in Besser's case. So again, we're rehashing slightly from Game of Thrones, but Chet trying to blame his anger on Samuel Tarly, being the reason for his coming on the ranging as foolish. They both ended up coming anyway, so even if he had kept his job, which Sam took, 
he probably would have had to come, so that's stupid. Clearly, they think Clydus is quite capable of looking after Maester Aemon himself, so that's just a, a non-starter for Chet there. But there's also Chet's dream of whispering something about love or regards to someone just as you kill them, again hinting at the major event of this book. So he thinks about when he kills, he's dreaming about killing Samuel Tarly, he can whisper something about Jon Snow, send him regards, blah, blah, blah. And again, that's very similar to what Roos does to Rob at the largest event of this book that it's going to be very difficult to cover so uh, circle that on your calendars everybody when the uh, check goes back to talk to the rest of the night's watch we have another quote you do not throw away your shield for no good purpose and we've got to agree with sir otten withers here jewels waiting on the fist is obviously going to inspire much talking and differing of opinion by now he should have made an ironclad declaration that they were either heading back sticking put or going to attack Mance. The indecision is the downfall here. That's what's allowed Chet to kind of think up all this way of escaping, of murdering. They need some direction. They've been on the fist for a good while, at least weeks, possibly even months by now. Of course, the mind is going to wander if you're on a freezing hill in a magical forest where you think dead things might be walking. You don't want to stay there very long. You need a purpose. But Dior, unfortunately, doesn't get to that first enough. But it is interesting. We do get some more Geo stuff. We get him and the other officers in the Night's Watch deciding if they can attack Mance. We have another quote here. The foothills of the Frostfangs are full of narrow winding valleys made for ambush. Is that your ambush or theirs, Geo? Well, I think Dior finally making a command is better than continued waiting, like I've just said. I still believe this is the wrong choice. There is an argument that Stannis proved striking would immediately break the wildlings. Well, that's what he does at the wall later in this book. So much in this book, isn't there? But Stannis has superior numbers. He has somewhere to retreat if needs be, and the multiply of wilding terrain was minimised by them being stuck in one place and at the edge of the forest. Not the case here above the wall. Gior clearly has less numbers, and it sounds like the, he intends to split them further for these multiple ambushes that he mentions. The rangers absolutely do not know the terrain as well as the wildlings, definitely not, not this far north. They will not have the element of surprise, although to be fair, Gior can't know about Mance having wargs. We don't know if he has one or many, but we can't really hold that against him. But more importantly, if things do go wrong, there is absolutely no backup plan. They will be surrounded by tens of thousands of now where wildlings, they'll be against the weather, and miles and miles will be between them and the wall. Dior has to be responsible here. However much he wants glory and a golden chance to end, to end Mance Raider, he should have realised that if things go wrong, it's not just them who suffer, but the entire watch and everything behind the wall also. Unless Mance is just strolling along with 50 men, Dior should have taken the cautious route and returned to the wall to put that shield to use, in my opinion. Don't worry, everybody. I can't complain about Dior for too much longer because uh, he's not around that much longer. Now, of course, like I say, best laid plans. That's not really a, an idea that succeeds too much in this book because soon the horns start blowing and originally Chet just thinks it's the, the orders to uh, fight the wildlings. And we have our last quote of this chapter. He thinks, We're done, he realised. Done before we began. We're lost. There'd be no lord's life for the leech and son. No keep to call his own. No wives, nor crowns. And I really like that this this particular inner thought here, this inner monologue, is really just Chet admitting that he wants everything the Night's Watch spouse specifically deny. He's literally almost going through it. He wants a lord's life. He wants a keep to call his own. He wants wives and crowns. The vows literally say you can't have any of those things. So he's really acting out here. Now when these horns blow, he's with Sam. He was about to do the deed. And I very much enjoyed Chet trying to tease Sam for cowardice while internally he's feeling the same, especially given what will occur in their respective near future. Sam's going to go on to kill uh, another and get away with Gilly. 
Chet is not going to do so well. I can only imagine what the end of this chapter was like for first-time readers back at publication, or, or prior to the show anyway. Before, the others were a secret experienced by three one-appearance characters that were merely hinted at, really. You didn't get to see that much of them. Now, they are here to break everything we know, decimate the Night's Watch, and basically upend everything we expected to happen before a book that will do the same over and over again. George is really letting us know, throw your expectations and your training wheels out for this book, because they are not going to be used. Everything is on the table here. And final note for this chapter, for this prologue, we have to consider that even if Jill's attack did work, the others didn't come at this moment. Assumedly, the tens of thousands of non-warrior wildlings would simply be scattered and added to the army of the dead. So there's really no good outcome. Because what happens then? Nothing good. If anything, the wall likely falls anyway due to Jill's inflated ego. Yeah, that's a real high to leave this first chapter on. I wouldn't ask for an ending on too many highs throughout this book. Just don't expect that, okay? Let's move on to our second chapter of the day. Our first proper chapter, if you like. Ding, ding, ding. It's new prologue time. So welcome to new POV time. Our first of two new POVs in this book. And we're getting one straight away. That's a nice way to start. And it's really hard to think of now that we've been thinking of Jamie as a POV character for 20 years. <laughs> At the time, this wasn't all that far from giving Joffrey or Tywin a POV. Or Cersei, obviously, but she has to wait her turn. Ignoring Catelyn's final chapter of Clash of Kings, Jamie at this point is only known for trying to murder a child, killing Jory and getting Ned's leg broke, being the main antagonist of the opening campaign for Rob in the Riverlands, being a huge Disney-type villain with his golden hair and stupid smile, and being part of the ancestral couple that kicked off the whole shebang in the first place. He's not got a good CV so far, basically, and we've just handed him a POV. This is very, very different. Theon is not really a fair comparison, other than his own smiling, we had no idea in Game of Thrones that he was as evil as he turned out to be. And he was a secondary character at best. Nowhere near the fame of Jamie, whether in-universe or for our own reading. So this is a really big deal. I can only imagine people opening up the book first time and getting past Chet to find Jamie won. We're giving Jamie Lannister a POV. What is George thinking here? So Storm of Swords for Jamie is in two halves, but they're very similar halves with some differences. In the first, Jamie is all about being imprisoned physically, whether with Brienne or Roos or then his own injury. He can't really do anything he wants to. There's no freedom for Jamie here. The second half is the exact same imprisonment, but this time it's by the constraints of his family and his relationship with Cersei instead of anything physical. Although he is technically free when he gets to King's Landing, we will find out later on, not really. He's very much trapped just by different types of things. So we said last time at the end of Clash of Kings that we needed a glimpse of inner Jamie before his POV began, so we had a reason to be interested in him and see him as a three-dimensional person rather than that Disney villain I just mentioned. That being said, we are way off from redemptioning just yet, and we first get that same Jamie from Clash, still arrogant, still uncaring about anyone other than himself or someone sharing his genes, and still being absolutely repugnant to Brienne. If there's anything that comes across in this uh, specific chapter, it is that Jamie is a meanie, he's a bully, and especially to Brienne. Case in point, at this early stage, Jamie believes his vows to Catelyn to have been made under duress, and uh, he, he's kind of right, and therefore completely invalid. This current form of Jamie would have never tried to get Sansa or Arya back in the slightest. I think that's clear. If Jamie, as he is in Jamie 1, gets back to King's Landing, there's no uh, oath keeping, no charging Brienne to find Sansa or anything like that. He's just forgetting about that straight away but as we know there are many changes for jamie to come on his journey home let's get to a quote early on here so as jamie thinks he says a strange woman to trust her girls to a man with shit for honor though she was trusting him as little as she dared 
she was putting her hope in Tyrion, not in me. So at the end of that line, we also get a hint that Jamie silently resents the fact that Catelyn didn't really trust in him, as he's been labelled untrustworthy since he killed Aerys so long ago. He's very similar to Tyrion in this fashion, believing himself unworthy in some key way, and yet being bitter that other people appear to feel the same. And while he's thinking back to the, his uh, time in the in the dungeon with Catelyn and what she made him swear on, he goes through these specific vows. And the last thing that Jamie has to swear by is probably the only one that really matters to him. Once upon a time, the oaths of knighthood and the king's guard would have meant the world to Jamie Lannister, but Aerys Targaryen saw to those. That leaves his family the last thing he swears by. Though we should note that his son is included in the vows, and we know Jamie cares nothing for Joffrey, so that doesn't really count. Good job too, since he'll be dead by the end of the book, as will Tywin, whom he definitely does care for, but only in his own twisted way. Moving on, the next key thing that Jamie thinks on about this chapter is he actually thinks back to pushing Bran out of the window, and I would focus on this if I were you, because it really doesn't come up that much in Jamie's POV, considering how massive, bad thing it is in someone's life to try and kill someone a child no less an innocent child on top of that jamie really doesn't think about it too much and as he's got to my notes about how jamie still just sees it as nothing it was annoyance to him even after the initial impulse of of the moment where he just he didn't think and pushed bran even after that was long gone and he, jamie had the time for some reflection he still saw the whole thing as an annoyance merely because he was getting nagged about it by cersei and even that nagging wound up with him having sex with cersei again so all's well that ends well in jamie's eyes but he does talk about, he does remember talking to Cersei about what could have happened if they had been found out. And he says he can go to war and he would have killed Ned and all this stuff. And his absolute confidence that he could either kill Ned or actually legitimately go to war with Robert uh, is so laughable. It reminds me of Theon a bit. To be fair, Jamie has way more reason to be confident than Theon ever did. And he maybe, he likely could kill Ned one on one if we're being honest to ourselves. But the belief he could get away with it or persuade the realm to go to war against the crown really shows off how Jamie doesn't allow himself to consider anything past the first instance. And to be fair, it doesn't seem like he was even considering persuading the other kingdoms to go to war. He didn't even think that far. He generally just wants to do it himself. He wants to succeed where Rhaegar failed and just, I don't know, maybe likes killing kings. Now, if we exit Jamie's head a little bit, we can look at Jamie's head a little bit because once he gets outside his own thoughts, and the next part of this chapter is him consenting to have his head shaved so he's not recognisable in the Riverlands. And I didn't really pick up before what a major moment it is that Jamie he says okay to this. Losing the Lannister hair is not a mere haircut for this family. It's worth as much symbolically as his golden armour. It's how people know the famous Jamie Lannister, and probably most importantly, it's how he's connected to his beloved sister, those famous golden curls. Having said that, perhaps the chance to escape being recognised as apparently captured by a mere woman in his in his view of all things, might give him the motivation to do that. Now let's talk about Brienne. Because Brienne is about as far as a woman can get from being Cersei. Well done, Brienne. That's a good thing. But early on, all Jamie's mind can comprehend is comparing the two directly. And that's going to come back again and again, especially in Feast, but even here, right from the off. Obviously, Jamie has never met anyone remotely like Brienne before, and has spent most of his adult life being uninterested in women that are likely very interested in him. Now there is a woman who is not sexually interested in him, but very much seems to be like him in physicality and ability. Though he cannot even entertain the thought of the latter at this point. He can't even comprehend, he just can't imagine Brienne being any good. That's, that's madness, of course, in Jamie's mind. Not that that stops him from being a complete bully and trying to tempt her into a fight. More than likely because Jamie has not fought anyone like Brienne before, 
or anyone at all for months on end, let's remember. And his whole self-worth is caught up in his fighting ability, just like early on John in Game of Thrones. And it's also worth noting that on initial read, we still know very little of Brienne at this point. She's remained very closed off to her. She's very quiet when she's with Catelyn. We specifically haven't gotten much from her herself. But on reread, after discovering her background in Feast, it's really important to look back at this scene and see that Jamie really has identified something that truly would cut and hurt Brienne, and she displays near angelic levels of patience dealing with Jamie here. And again, rereading comes up big because even at this juncture, Jamie's arc looks to get him out of the Riverlands ASAP. That's what this chapter is about, basically. How can they get through the Riverlands? How can they not get spotted or captured? But we know Jamie's going to come back anyway, and he's going to have to deal with some of these after effects that he's really not bothered about too much at the moment. He's kind of walking through the Riverlands at this point, not thinking about being anything to do with him. But of course, he will come back to deal with at least some elements. Not all of them, but some. And the final thought for this chapter is Aya's last chapter of Clash of Kings saw Roose Bolton's Harrenhal punish small folk for crimes. Quote, crimes. They had no or little choice partaking in. And in this chapter, we get that right back in an even more gruesome way. The women slain by the Northmen very much represent all of that that we've just talked about in Aya. And of course, Aya had to learn there are bad people on the northern side, as we see here too. So... It's not just Ayas, the readers getting taught that again, that Northmen can be bad, they can do really bad things. And again, it's just that the idea that there's no doubt these kind of thoughtless, logicless crimes are going on all over the realm on both sides. And again, really points out to us the stupidness of this war. But that is Jamie 1. Hello, Jamie. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls. Welcome to the other faces. I'm sure that you'll enjoy it here. We'll be back with you very soon. But now let's move on to our third chapter of the day, Catelyn 1. Yes, rejoice, fellow green folk. It is Catelyn, and as I'm sure you all, all know, Catelyn is my favourite character. She's my favourite POV, so I'm very glad to be back in her arc again. Not so much considering it ends in this book, and uh, yeah, that's going to be tough. And uh, I think as he's got to my note about this being uh, well, it's a, bit a doozy of an arc, really, isn't it? And it's really hard to know that we're starting off on that. Certainly, rereading, writing the notes for this, I was getting sad because... I love Catelyn and I do not like how her life ends. But even this early on, we're getting a hint that Catelyn is going to be even more central in this book compared to the first two, even though she kind of bows out like halfway through. But consider these first two chapters, uh, normal chapters, not Chet, obviously, are heavily focused either on Catelyn, being her POV, or her decision at the end of Clash via Jamie. So already we've got a double dose. And even the next chapter, I is still going to be in the Riverlands. So we're really focusing right in the middle of Westeros early on here. So let's begin. We see many characters fall back on the idea of mother's madness several times throughout the series and never more than with Catelyn. For some it is simply disparaging that Catelyn would have the intelligence or cutting for such a deed. For Desmond Grell, and when I mean deed obviously I'm talking about Jamie being freed. For Desmond Grell and the others it is more an uncomfortability with having to lay such a huge decision at the feet of the girl they have just watched grow up. They don't want to believe that sweet little Catelyn who used to be running around with Lysa what seems like yesterday to them I'm sure would be someone capable of releasing the Kingslayer and really affecting the war and the fates of all. They don't want to think that. That's not how women act, surely. They can't... No, someone must have told her to do it, or she must be mad, or something like that. Unfortunately, that is the line of thinking of not all, but many of Westeros's men. It's similar to if it was Sir Roderick having to chastise, or Sir Roderick having to chastise grown-up Sans or something. We can easily imagine him sharing this extreme discomfort. But it's very interesting that Catelyn does not stand for such a notion on this occasion. She's not having it said that it was Mother's Madness that released Jamie Lannister. No, no, no. 
She makes sure it is known she knew what she was doing. She understood the consequences and she did it anyway. I wonder how much of this is convincing herself that the idea was not mad in the first place. How much of it is her wanting the decision to be all hers in the hopes that the gods may finally reward her of Iron Sansa. Perhaps pride in the act will make it true and good in her in her mind. Maybe. Now Aziz got to quite a few of my notes on this chapter so I won't repeat them for you. So you'll find in these episodes you might have to jump about a bit depending on what Aziz gets to do and what not. But one of the major parts of this chapter is... Catelyn going to her dying father to Hoster and talking about Tansy and really relating back to Lysa. And it's fitting that we get this new and incredibly important information on Lysa in a book that will bring her back into the fold after a considerable layoff. For first-time readers especially, Lysa is remembered as an incredibly frustrating, selfish woman who essentially abandoned her family at a time of need and gave away their key political prisoner at the time, Tyrion. And that's without the discovery from this book's final chapter about about how she really kicked off the whole series. For those who are rereading, Lysa's evil and its consequences are well known and rightly downcast. But this news forces all of us to consider her in another light. And by news, I mean the revelation of what Hoster did to her in her youth, which I'm sure you're all aware of. The evil visited on her by her own father is one of the cruelest acts we ever see in this series. There's no arguing about that. And do not forget, Catelyn has spoken many times about how fathers, her father specifically, are supposed to protect their daughters. That's their role. Lysa undoubtedly was told the same thing as her sister when she was young. She expected Hoster, especially in the absence of their deceased mother, to be the one that she could go to and tell of her secret and be looked after. Instead, he abuses her emotionally and physically, and the Lysa that we were introduced to in Game of Thrones, a bloated and paranoid version of Catelyn, makes a lot more sense. How sure are we that Catelyn wouldn't have turned out the exact same way if Hoster hadn't done the same thing to Cat's pregnancy with Rob? Hmm, food for thought. As if to double down on what Hoster did, Catelyn remembers baby Rob being shoved in Lysa's face very shortly after everything went down. That must have been an incredibly hard moment for the younger Tully sister. Where she had likely seen her and Catelyn as equal up to that point, they were married on the same day, both to Lords Paramount, they were both about to head off and give birth in new regions, Suddenly, Catelyn is getting everything Lysa wanted, and Lysa is not. She's taking away from Peter, her home, and her child. Hence, at this moment, the estrangement between sisters begins, and Catelyn was completely unaware of why. I've mentioned this before, but I always wonder how much Brynden Tully, the blackfish, knew of this, and if it was a big enough argument with his brother to finally leave Riverrun, combined with knowledge that Lysa's need was now far greater than Catelyn and Redmure's. And you know I'm a big old fan of Brynden. While all of this is effective at distracting Catelyn from worrying about Brienne and Jaime, it's also a very difficult concept to accept, especially over a deathbed, the idea that her father isn't an angel. While Catelyn doesn't directly reference Hoster burning towns during Robert's Rebellion or anything like that, she likely knows he can't be all that squeaky clean as a Lord Paramount, but this is something different entirely, obviously. It will be those who argue this was an act of kinslaying. There's certainly the evidence considering Hoster's actions which he may have done with the intention of saving Lysa, okay, but that's irrelevant. Given that the war burns the Riverlands, the later murders or captures of half the Tully family, and we see the phrase gaining River Run all stemming from the damage inflicted on Lysa by her father, yeah, that kinslaying curse certainly seems to fit here. Whatever Hoster's reasons for doing this, the message is clear. This system is stupid and it is the women who suffer. I don't think I need to elaborate on that. I think we've gained that about Westeros already. So, when news comes of Rob's wound, Catelyn focuses on the possibility of Rob being dead. So George is again teasing us with the eventual truth. But she's also just getting used to any news being bad news. What was the last letter she got? Probably about Bran and Rickon being dead. 
So it makes sense that she'll believe more more bad news will come. Maybe she even thinks it's due as payback for the release of Jamie. She let Jamie go, so now Karma's going to punish her, basically. And of course, rereaders know this is the early sprinkling of events that will eventually lead Rob and Catelyn to the twins later in the book. We really get no time off of this one. We know Rob getting injured, that throws him into certain situations, that has a knock-on effect, and we basically just spend this whole book watching the dominoes slowly fall with Rob and Catelyn. Definitely, I didn't pick up on it. Well done to you if you did, but reread, we can really just see how everything lines up. And we get really angry with George about it. At least I do. So finally for this chapter, Edmure returns, and he's quite quick to jump on Catelyn for releasing Jamie. I wonder if that's because... I wonder if that's because he has realised his own mistake led to Stannis being defeated and Tywin being victorious. Something else he focuses on, Tywin being victorious. I suppose the argument is whether Edmure would be aware enough to feel guilt or shame about it yet. He certainly acts like he doesn't when Rob returns. Although, he legitimately does have reason to be upset with Jamie's release. It was the major payback for Edmure being captured, the people he will soon be lord of died putting Jamie in chains, and is another mark against him in the eyes of his king. So, you know... Certainly, Catelyn assessing Edmure as a fool is unfair. She put him in a corner with very little room to do anything else, and it's her gambit that was always so likely, unlikely to succeed. Edmure is just the messenger of the odds getting even worse. So, much as I love Catelyn, I have to be fair here, not her best moment kind of taking it out on Edmure when she's really made the mistake. And again, we're going to see those effects as we go. But let's move on. Let's wrap up today with our last chapter of this opening is Aya 1. So from the high of Aya's escape at the end of Clash of Kings comes a healthy dose of realism in the light of morning. Yes, they're out of Harrenhal, but now what? The three escapees have been in this situation before when Euron died, but that went badly very quickly. They're a little bit older now, they're a little bit more aware, and they really know how bad it'll be if they do get recaptured. So Aya, Gendry and Hot Pie, they try and put their heads together for a result even if it's not so easy as they believe. And that's really the point of this chapter is that they are kind of stuck. They don't really know what they're doing now. All they know is they need to get away. They need to evade capture at any cost. And hopefully they can get to Riverrun in the process. They spend a lot of time obviously looking over their backs, hoping no one appears. And luckily, no one ever does, at least not from the Boltons. And for all we know, no one has actually ever sent out after them. Perhaps because Roos is made aware that Jamie can be hunted instead, and three nameless teens who stole a couple of horses and a knife versus the Kingslayer, it's kind of obvious where your resources should go. But who knows, we never actually get told that. I like that included in this chapter is that Aya knows she needs to get to River Run. Would even know vaguely where it is on a, on a map, I assume, and she has that kind of map to help her, but has zero idea on how to really get there. It's another classic mark of, of George's realism, but it also challenges the readers, many of whom would often say it's, it's quite simple. We know exactly where it is. Obviously, we spend all our time looking at the map. But likely, we would be equally helpless in the same situation. And this is with a, a really crude map, which might give a general outline. But as we find out, a rough map is quite different to the real world. It's easy to just look at a piece of paper and go, oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a little bit to the left over that wrinkle and we're there. But obviously, actual out in countryside that you've never seen before, very, very difficult. I'm sure many of you have had experience with this. Very difficult to actually even keep in a straight line and uh, not get lost and wound up who knows where. And that, of course, we've probably not tried that with people trying to hunt us down, having to cover our tracks or anything like that. And probably not as like 11-year-old kids either. So who knows? Despite all they've been through and I's recent killing of a full-grown man, they are still just lost children. 
it simply isn't recognized how easy it is to get lost or die like i say so Ayer and co they do pretty well overall and let's not forget that gendry and hotby grew up in a metropolis and while Aya surely went to the wolfswood once or twice and picked up tips from her father or jewelry or even benjen so she doesn't know about the moss on the trees after all ultimately she grew up in a cozy castle not in the country so none of them are in their their favorite spot here of course let's consider that i have had a perfect map or she did they did just find their way really easy the ultimate irony is that if i had been able to reach river run there's every chance she gets taken to the twins and either dies or is a valuable hostage like sansa there's the possibility she's allowed to rest at river run i suppose instead of joining the rest of the family I suppose it depends on when she gets there in relation to when they have to leave for the twins but personally i can't see catelyn letting aya out of her sight for a second let alone weeks on end no chance not over everything they've been through so maybe catelyn stays behind with her but seeing as i was part of the original stark Frey deal anyway you'd have to think it's more likely that she goes and Callan also wouldn't be all that keen to see Rob go off again on her own, would she? On his own, rather. As fun as it is to imagine a Feast of Crows where the Blackfish is defending his castle and the door of his beloved niece, unfortunately, that's just not what we get. Although, before all that, all the bad stuff, Aya's arrival would have been a huge morale boost to obviously Catelyn, but also the other Northerners I would have at least appeased some of the complaining about Jamie. It maybe even gains momentum for Catelyn's hopes to get Sansa back, though that makes it even worse for the Northerners. They weren't happy about Jamie being exchanged for two girls, let alone one. And Aziz actually got to the majority of my notes here, so this is my last note for I won and for the day. So all along, Aya seems to have the constant companionship of the wolves in this chapter, the ones we all agree belong to Nymeria. And they're there to remind her she has her own strength and that she is on the right path. Maps, useless. Wolves, very handy. They even provide some small vengeance for the woes of Harrenhal and of the Riverlands in general, when Aya dreams of them ripping some bloody mummers apart. Of course, we are left to wonder what it could have been if Aya went full tilt into rejoining Nymeria at this point. But she also makes a very good point to herself. She is responsible for Gendry and for Hot Pie. They left Harren Hall in a lie, if you remember. If they perish, the fault lies with her. So her original pack will have to wait until she has taken care of her new one. And unfortunately, that's something we're still waiting for in Winds of Winter. But here's fingers crossed. And there you go, everybody. That is Aya 1. That is part one of storm of swords scraps and scrolls slash valoridis and i hope you enjoyed this opening chapter if you'd like a sneaky little preview on what comes next let me fill you in like i said five chapters a week from now on i'm sure that that may change every now and then as these on the show might need a break or they might need, want to do an extra big one but seems like the norm will be five and next time it's all firsts we get Tyrion one we get davos one spoiler davos survived sansa one John one and Daenerys one and hey if you weren't a fan of Daenerys and Clash of Kings much like me don't worry we get repaid in double triple quadruple in the Storm of Swords so that's all to look forward to that'll all be next week like I say to our wonderful patrons this will come out later today on Monday everyone else general public release that'll be tomorrow you get things a bit early because you're so nice as patrons and yes wonderful wonderful thank you for joining us do get in touch everything i said at the beginning i won't rehash it here you've got some rereading to do see you next time guys goodbye <laughs>